everyone, and welcome to the 120th episode of Final Fantasy Union. I'm your host, Brandon, and I'm here with Jared. Hey, guys. This is weird. I'm yes, not usually the host. So <laughs> so basically, Lauren and Daryl, they're, they're off on, on holiday, so they needed somebody to take over. So I, I happily obliged, and I've got Jared here. We're going to have an awesome, awesome discussion today. Is this the American Bro Duocast? Yeah, something, something like that. <laughs> well, the, no, this is the Florida Brocast because that's we're both right. in Florida. That's the that's our first thing, first time ever. Now, Dual, are you Central Florida, North Florida? I am South Florida, and oh, you're on man, the. I'm I'm Northwest, man. I'm sorry, my yeah, enemies. Mm-mm. That's 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 cool. That's fine. It's all Florida, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. It's all Florida. So. So anyway, for you new folks, Final Fantasy Union is part of the podcast series called Final Fantasy and Kingdom Hearts Union and is presented by the Gaming Union Network. We release every Tuesday, rotating each week with Kingdom Hearts Union, and we come out on the iTunes store, FinalFantasyUnion.com, and YouTube.com slash Final Fantasy Union, or FF Union Vids. So YouTube.com slash FF Union Vids. All right, in... As far as the show is concerned, we have two segments today. We have a news segment. We've got a lot of cool Final Fantasy news topics today. And we have our featured discussion where we're going to talk about how Final Fantasy XV is, as far as Tabata is concerned, the make or break for the franchise. It's definitely a bit of a controversial subject. It's a controversial subject, but it's that if it's controversial, that means it's good for discussion. Oh, absolutely. And we like that on here, so... In the way of announcements, as always, if you guys like the show and you want us to improve, get better, add stuff to the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash ffkhunion. Just pledge a dollar and get access to a whole separate show called Please Be Excited. It's something that only Patreon supporters can listen to, and it's super awesome, and it releases uh, about once a month, so definitely check that out. Speaking of Patreon, our Patreon executive producers for this episode are Christian Burge. We also have William Trengrove, who is at Varnish the Azure on Twitter. We have Tiger Crane, who is at Paupu Milkshake. Uh, Barry Norton, who is at Nortron Zero. Skylar Loveless. Josh McNabb, who is at J2K9. We have Nico Gonzalez, who is at Nick underscore knack 95 we have clay kilo who is at super nendo uh chris volant who is uh oh we have michael graham and then we have chris volant who is at moosehead studio uh harley crawley who is at dark zt okami we have thorin bullen and uh peter lamb and jerry if you could take these next ones we have alex trotman at akira namjin manning franks at light underscore Peyton. Keith Field at the Mighty Keith, Billy Jackson at underscore Billy Jackson, Mike Shirley Donnelly at Curious Quail, Joni Oja at Diocor for Life, Mohammed Kayum, Genesis Alejandro at uh, Junyasan Seven, Zelda Clone at. It's a tough one. Yeah, a pesty pen, a, a, a pesty pen novels. <laughs> Or ape type novels, if you like. And yeah, some, Zachary like McAllister. There you go. All right. So thank you guys so much for your support. It's because of you that we can continue to improve the show. And as last I checked, we're actually really close to uh, one of our first milestones, which will actually open up 
Uh, so currently we have uh, giveaways that we do on Patreon. I believe our next uh, our next tier, once we hit it, uh, uh, we'll actually be able to give away two things per month on our uh on our patreon so that's super awesome two prizes a month and then i think our next tier is three prizes a month so if you guys like prizes support us on patreon so moving on to the news first bit of news just real quick if you guys didn't know final fantasy 9 is available on steam so if you like playing on pc like i do final fantasy 9 is there and from what i can tell pretty good port not perfect but you know what can you do yeah, so to anyone who may uh, be interested in knowing this, uh, since this is pretty much just an iOS port, uh, you're mm-hmm. not going to find any Steam Cloud integration. Uh, yeah. A couple little nitpicks here and there, but overall it seems to be a well-loved and enjoyed port. Exactly, exactly. Uh, the good news is modders are already on the case. They're working on it, so uh, hopefully soon we'll be able to do things like change out the music, uh, maybe uh, upgrade the backgrounds, uh, stuff like that. So hopefully soon we'll have that. But as of right now, uh, they have not been able to crack it yet. But don't worry, we got our best, our best operatives working on it. Uh, our next bit of news: King's Glaive Final Fantasy 15 is premiering in Japan in theaters July 9th, which is kind of surprising because uh, the way they made it sound at Uncover, they they didn't say anything about theaters. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah, and, uh, so uh, to anyone who might be going to Japan or is in Japan, you can pre-order your tickets now. Yeah, exactly. So uh, if if you happen to be in Japan in the middle uh, in the middle of summer, hey, check it out. Uh, speaking of Final Fantasy fifteen, ten thousand more Ultimate Collectors Editions are being uh, produced of uh, Final Fantasy fifteen, and they will be uh, basically that ten thousand. Uh, allotment will be spread out across all regions. Uh, one thing to note, there is no guarantee that those, uh, those ultimate collector's editions will make it for the, uh, September 30th launch day. They're gonna try, but, uh, something, <laughs> something kind of funny, and, and it's just, you know, just reality. They said, depending on how, how fair the oceans are, <laughs> around that time that'll actually be a major factor on whether or not uh final fantasy 15's uh extra ultimate collector's editions will make it on time like that that, that might just be a code talk for we're afraid we're going to run into the same amiibo issue nintendo well, did in california yeah but it, it that is that is actually a, a literal possibility because they most likely are shipping them on boats so uh yeah that could that could be an issue for some people uh uh, to to anyone who might be uh, concerned about the content in the collector's edition it is it's not going to change it's the exact same it is the ultimate collector's edition with yeah all the stuff in it and it's just as expensive as you remembered it so (laughs) if you still have if you still have 270 us dollars burning a hole in your pocket hey (laughs) that's that there is a square enix ready to take your money if you're faster than 10,000 other people. Yeah, if, if you're like me and you're going to buy it solely for that music, trust me, wait. If they put the uh, music of F and Children on iTunes, they'll do it with this movie also. Exactly. Don't I wouldn't worry about it too much. I would say the main I would say the main considering factor is if you're really into play arts guys because as far as I understand, for now there there are no plans, quote unquote, 
to release that figure in any other format. Obviously, they will at some point, but currently, I would say, you know, for for the you know short term, if you really want that Noctis figure, this is how you're going to get it. Uh, so moving along, uh, there's been a lot of Game Informer coverage on Final Fantasy 15, and so I figured let's talk about some of the more interesting tidbits from it. Uh, so just so you know, uh, Game Informer actually went, uh, according to them, they went at the beginning of March, so around March 1st, March 3rd, so well before the Uncovered event, and actually spent a nice long time, I think like an entire week, uh, at the business dev business dev two studio at Square Enix, and they spent time with all the developers, talking to everybody, you know, and they actually got to play through the first chapter of the game. So they actually have a really good understanding of how the game is, and they've been releasing all these great interviews and impressions. So uh, if you want to get more on this uh, this coverage, you can check it out on Game Informer. But I will just as a caution, uh, the description that they go into on the first chapter may be considered spoilers to some. So just fair warning. However, what we will be talking about right now should not be spoilers to anyone. Uh, first bit of news that, I, well, the first bit of interesting info that I wanted to talk about from the Game Informer coverage is the structure of the game. In their impressions video, they basically discussed uh, how Final Fantasy XV feels to play and what sort of things you will do they wanted to reiterate that while that final fantasy 15 is indeed an open world game in the sense that final fantasy 15 uses the open world as a technological backbone in the sense that you know the world is one massive seamless world that you will be in but as far as the flow of the game, as far as the flow of the story, it is still a linear story that you will be experiencing. Uh, and you'll, you know, encounter side quests along the way and that sort of thing. So, Yeah, and uh, I guess you could say in order to prevent you from going somewhere too early, there will be roadblocks. Yeah, because, stuff, you know, stuff like that. Roads in a car, roadblock. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Progression blockers, as they might say in an MMO. But yeah, effectively that sort of thing. I think that there was a lot of miscommunication maybe earlier in the day just because there's so many words that we use to describe open world games that sort of dovetail and people use it to mean different things. So to one person, when they think open world, they think, oh, it's a game where you're open to do whatever you want in the world. You know, like Skyrim, where literally when you get out of the first opening section, you can just go off and go to some other strange land and do all kinds of quests there, and the you can ignore the main storyline entirely in Skyrim. That is not the type of open world they're talking about. The type of open world they're talking about is the... uh the actual literal physical world is a massive connected landmass that you can explore without load times. That's what they're referring to. Um, some people might call that a sandbox, but again, some people, when they think sandbox, they think Grand Theft Auto and, you know, doing literally anything you want. That is not the case. And, and the fact it's so big and yet there's no load times, I mean, the only game I'm aware of that's done something close to that 
was one of the uh, Tom Clancy games that came out in uh, last, last generation's consoles. But uh, since then, you e- even though MMOs are technically similar to that, you're always running into load screens. Anyway. Exactly. Even exactly. though they try to avoid that, it, it still happens. Something so, I mean, Tab- it's impressive they've a, been able to a do game this. that uh, a game Tabata actually frequently brings up is Red Dead Redemption uh, on the on the PlayStation Three and Xbox Three Sixty. Uh, and basically, yeah, it, it was it was sort of. It sort of followed the same process that they're describing here where you would start out in one general area and you could progress up into a certain point, but uh-oh, the bridge is out and I can't go to that side of the, I can't go to that side of the desert. And uh-oh, uh, the, the bandits over here in America are chasing us. We need to escape to Mexico. So let's get on a raft and we will float to Mexico. And, and, you know, the story would continue that way. So effectively, in the same way that Red Dead Redemption would lead you through the entire world using the story, that seems to be the way Final Fantasy XV is panning out. That said, it seems like later in the game, you know, much like with, you know, older Final Fantasies, it'll most likely open up where you can, you know, go anywhere you want. You know, late game Final Fantasy, traditionally speaking, once you hit a certain point of the game, you can backtrack and go and revisit pretty much anywhere. Uh, and uh, speaking of traveling, another thing Game Informer talked about was the car, specifically in manual mode. So if you guys remember, uh, the car has two modes. There's an automatic mode where Ignis will drive the car, and he's effectively Google Maps. So you give him a location, he'll map it out on the GPS, and you can just relax and let him do the driving. Uh, but there's also a manual mode uh, where Noctis is driving, and that is actually something they did not reveal until this until this Game Informer thing. So Noctis, Noctis does have his driver's license, probably, or he's driving illegally. And uh, the way Game Informer described it is when you're in this mode, the car is quote-unquote gravitationally drawn to the road and isn't as free as something like a Grand Theft Auto where you can just drive on anything. And this is what made me laugh about that because as yeah. soon as I realized gravitationally drawn meant they were going to try to keep you on the road, I was like, oh no, I know what they're doing here. They're trying to prevent you from running into mm-hmm. some kind of collision or bug yeah. that is going to take them for Because the game is as huge as they're saying. Exactly. Driving off the road is going to cause Lord knows how many bugs. Exactly, exactly. So that's smart on their end. Yeah, and the funny thing is, speaking of collisions, the Game Informer guy said, "Yeah, if you wrestle, if you wrestle the car enough, you can get off the road, and you can run into things." You can. He said he was. He specifically said, "I was running into boulders over and over and over again, and it was damaging the car." So, to me, it's kind of weird because, like. Okay, so if you can do that, and you even have a system for damaging the car from a technological standpoint, what what limitations would there be to keep, uh, not not allow you from driving everywhere? And I think you hit the nail on the head. It's probably not a technol, maybe not a, a technological issue, but it might be maybe a story issue. Like maybe they don't want people like veering so far off that they you know drive the car into the middle of the goblin cave. Right, it, like from episode Dust Guy, and get it stuck in there, or yeah, which I mean, you, something you know, like that. You know, now that they've basically given the challenge, I mean, basically saying the car is graphic, uh drawn to the road. That's like 
um, yeah, that's issue telling me. I'm, <laughs> let's see how see far YouTube I can videos go. videos of people exactly. killing a Bahamut, I mean, not Bahamut, a behemoth yeah, with the car now. With the we car, will see exactly. this on YouTube. Exactly, exactly. And uh, so, yeah, that that is pretty interesting. What that kind of reminds me of is uh, in The Witcher 3, there's a the horse there named Roach. Uh, the way he works is you can run anywhere, but when you get on the road, you can basically just hold the gallop button and he will sort of stay on that road and follow the road because he's a horse. He knows to follow the road. He's, he's intelligent. But if you want to get off the road, you just sort of have to hit the stick to get him off the road and you can, you know, go off road. But it seems like Final Fantasy 15 takes that a step further where, yeah, you can just stay on the road by holding the accelerator. But if you want to get off the road, you have to constantly be fighting Noctis from trying to get back on the road. So. That'll be interesting to see how that fully pans out. Uh, and moving from that, speaking again about the car, the flying car, uh, Tabata clarifies, is a late game upgrade. And it is not the only late game upgrade, that there is actually a form beyond that. So one can only imagine what that's like. And uh, the Game Informer guys wanted to specifically iterate that they actually did try the flying car. And they said, yes, it's literally as easy as you press a button. The thing transforms, the wings come out, and you fly. And there isn't like a weird cutscene that leads you into a menu and then you pick your location. You are fully free to fly. It is a proper airship. Yeah, and so, I, I did breathe a little bit of sigh of relief when they said, yes, this isn't a cutscene thing, because my first yeah. thought went to, well, Tabod did Type-0, and Type-0, it's just a cutscene. You don't really, I mean, yes, you kind of can, but they try to make it to where it's just a cutscene. Unless you, you know, jump through a bunch of hoops to get the special one, but... um. So, in this case, yes, the flying car, it's a fully functional, fully explorable airship, and I think that's pretty interesting, because, so, the car in normal mode is gravitationally stuck to a road. But once you get in the air, hey man, fly wherever you want. If if you ask me, flying would probably cause more problems <laughs> than anything you could do stuck to the ground. So I wonder why, you know, in that case, uh, the only thing I can guess is because it's a late game upgrade, at that point, you've seen the whole world. So as far as they're concerned, hey man, go wherever you want. You've seen it all already. Enjoy it from the air. That's well, what so, I think this is Something they may about. have done, and I was just thinking, well, if you're flying, you know, you could cause even more bugs or crazy collisions. Yeah. If you remember in the older 2D Final Fantasy games, or actually any of them with the airship, when yeah. you're flying, it will not allow you to land unless it's in a special zone. Chances yeah. are you can't land this car unless it's directly on a road. Well... Interesting that you bring that up. Something that Tabata mentioned and that the Game Informer guys actually never got to experience was the landing of the airship. And Tabata actually said that landing, while taking off is easy, landing the airship is hard. And he even went as far as to say, you will probably fail it your first time. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm kind of afraid for these guys' safety when I bring them into the air. I feel like I'm going to crash into the ground and the car's going to blow up. Like, what's, what's really going to happen here? I'm really hoping if something crazy does happen, yeah. that the uh, cats will actually react to, like, they'll yell at Nox, like, Noctix, you idiot. What did you- you blew you my idiot. car again. <laughs> you busted the car again. Now we got to. Yeah, then you have a cutscene of them pushing it to Sydney's uh. all over again. Yeah, except this time it's a smoldering mess and it's not just out of gas. <laughs> it's like, 
<laughs> Look, Cindy, I know the last time we, we were here, we asked you to put on these crazy expensive wings. I'm sorry. <laughs> we're going to need you to do that again and probably a little bit more. Then we get traded to a mini game of avoiding uh, flying wrenches from Sydney. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Uh, so we'll see what it is. I'm excited to find out what this next transformation is. My very conservative understanding or conservative guess is that it's probably just Flying Car Mark II. It's a faster version. Maybe it flies higher. But I, d- I personally do not expect something that is entirely different like a spaceship or a submarine because that will cause them to that'll basically force them to have to create a bunch of content that is in effect optional so i don't think that would probably be the best idea only because um it's the fact that they put this so late in the game Mm -hmm. mock they're not gonna have enough time to put anything into mock 2 Mm-hmm. To make it necessarily more special, so it will make sense that all we're really getting is a speed and a little visual upgrade. Exactly. I mean, it's not exactly. like we're going to get some kind of transformer type thing going on here. The way we saw the the car work originally, the car was driving and then it transformed and then it took off. You know, like an like a like a normal airplane. Right. What if this other car could do vertical takeoff, doing VTOL? So like a kind of like a Harrier jet where it can take up straight off the ground, almost like a helicopter. So it doesn't need road in front of it to take off. And perhaps with that, you would be allowed to take off and also do vertical descent. And maybe that'll allow you to go to certain areas that maybe are too mountainous. So maybe they'll block off a certain area where maybe there's a secret boss. Maybe that's how you get to Ultima Weapon to fight him. I don't know. Right, I mean, it would definitely make sense. But that's and that's it, wouldn't, a, it wouldn't be difficult to do. Exactly. That's that's what I'm trying to say is like that that would be a possibility to reward the player for getting this special upgrade while also not adding a lot of difficulty to them because for them to create some mountains where that are in a certain shape where you can't get into it you know other than vertical descent that's not complicated that's pretty easy to do and then to add a boss that they probably were already developing for the game that's not impossible to do you know it's just that you know hey it's maybe it's like a mount maybe it's like an old uh you know defunct volcano and you can't get into it any other way you can't walk up it you can't you know do anything the only way you can get into this volcano if you is if you land straight down into it so maybe that's a possibility of something that uh you know they could add to the car that would open up possibilities that aren't out of the realm of possibilities so i think that pretty much covers all the game informer coverage that we wanted to talk about for now well I lie, because now we're moving on to our feature discussion, where we're actually going to talk about something that Tabata did talk about at length with Game Informer, and that is about how Final Fantasy XV could very well be the make or break for the franchise. And just to expound on that a little bit, basically the way Tabata describes the current series is it's the way the series is, is we're at a point where the franchise is at the lowest it's ever been and uh it's actually in a more dire situation than they previously estimated uh and that it took creating this final fantasy and talking to the fans for him to find out and he even went as far as to say in the case of japan uh 
uh, the situation is extremely dire because not only is Final Fantasy having to deal with, you know, the, the poor, the poor reception, uh, of the wider, wider game and audience, but in Japan, the console market is greatly, greatly, greatly shrinking due to various circumstances in Japan, like work-life balance, uh, you know, the, the hours that they work and, you know, the size of their homes and the time that they actually spend at home. For whatever reason, console gaming is shrinking and whatever happens to console gaming happens to Final Fantasy. And Tabata said that, you know, it, if Final Fantasy were to continue on the trajectory that it was going in, uh, coming off of the PlayStation 3 generation, that Final Fantasy is as good as done in Japan. And that if that happened, you know, it, it would happen in the West shortly after. So it's very interesting to see Tabata so sober and so, you know, blunt about the current state of Final Fantasy. Yeah, and, and while many people, you know, here, here in America, outside of Japan, it's not uncommon to hear this kind of criticism. Yeah. But it is very significant that someone within the company Square Enix mm-hmm. is making these statements because, I mean, it, once you understand their culture a little better, you realize that it's kind of, what he said it could be interpreted as like the opposite. It could be seen as like disloyalty almost. And that yeah. is a... No, you never say anything negative about the company, the product. It's always good, 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 good. Exactly. And the fact he's saying this, I mean, if anything, it shows his passion for the series. Yeah, and I, mean, I think this is a big deal. The things here he's saying. Yeah, his his transparency and his honesty, like, is really welcome because, like, for the longest time, it always felt like Square was this massive ivory tower that you could never look into. It was this big black box and you, you 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 never knew what was actually going on on the inside and all the politics and all that. And that that's actually just a big part of their culture i mean when they mm-hmm. do business deals they they it's like a game almost you never exactly. show what you truly want to do you play a game i i've heard often described as a game of wearing a mask exactly you wear a mask and you have to guess what's behind that mask of the person you're dealing with exactly so th- this is very out of the ordinary for anything for any japanese company Exactly. And, uh, Tabata has actually since, uh, gone to com, gone to respond to, uh, some people thinking that he's saying that the Final Fantasy 13 games were terrible. He, he has gone and further, uh, explained what he was talking about. And what he was saying is that he's, he's not saying that Final Fantasy 13 or the Final Fantasy 13 games were bad. Uh, and he even went as far as to say that he's actually a, a, a fan of Final Fantasy XIII. But as far as what he calls being a challenger in the industry at large, he says that the prior Final Fantasies, and actually the Final Fantasies he says un- since seven, have not been the same, have not challenged the industry at large in a in a grand way and i think if you think of it that way especially in terms of technology uh the it makes sense you know final fantasy 13 regardless of how you feel about it you know from a more objective standpoint there are a lot of things that final fantasies used to be able to do that were stripped out of final fantasy 13 like towns like side quests like airships like we were talking about before uh, the, the lack of mini games lack of mini games like there's a lot of things that were very objectively stripped out of final fantasy 13 so regardless of if 
Final Fantasy 13 is a good game or not a good game, I would say if we're talking about how Tabata views Final Fantasy games, Final Fantasy 13 would be an example of a bad Final Fantasy game. Not ne- not necessarily saying that it is a bad game, but as a Final Fantasy, it is not meeting its requirements. And the requirements he says are what he calls these three pillars, and we're going to talk about those right now. So the three pillars, just real quick, so we're going to talk about uh, each one in depth, but I just want to give you an overview of what these all are. First, he calls uh, the first pillar cutting-edge technology. Uh, secondly, he says that uh, Final Fantasy must deliver an amazing, engrossing experience, one that you will never forget. And finally, a Final Fantasy, a great Final Fantasy, must challenge the status quo. So in that respect, when we think about Final Fantasy thirteen and you know the 13 series i would say from a technology standpoint yes they did uh propel the games further visually but in many other ways technology technologically speaking especially when you look at what final fantasy 15 is doing with the open world from a technological technological standpoint it's not hitting the mark it's not like if you think back in 2009 and 2010 when final fantasy 13 came out what were its contemporaries? What other games were coming out? We're talking Red Dead Redemption. We're talking about Grand Theft Auto 4 came out the year prior. We're talking about so many open world games that had come out and then Square releases the most linear game they've ever released Yeah, well, I mean, it wasn't history. just that it was linear compared to the other games. I mean, yeah, we, we've said before 10 is linear, but not to disagree. Something yeah. else, though, was even though they focused so much on giving us, you know, great sound quality, great... Mm-hmm. Uh, great uh, visuals, mm-hmm. things like the battle system, they, while fun, felt incomplete. It, exactly. It felt like there were pieces that were never fully realized with the technology. And it, for what it seems like, it, it, it definitely seems like the, the 13 team, the, you know, the Final Fantasy 13 that we played, it very much seems like that's not what they intended to deliver. They did have to cut back a lot on that. Unfortunately, the Final Fantasy 13 that was released was the Final Fantasy 13 that released, and that shapes the brand, or at least the perception of the brand. And that definitely did, you know, majorly contribute to why, you know, in the gaming community at large, why the uh, image of Final Fantasy has definitely gone down, at least in terms of public perception. I'm sure yeah, there's plenty of fans that still new, like it. This wasn't just a new console generation of Final Fantasy new brand new generations people younger than us mm-hmm. that was their first final fantasy and exactly so may have loved it but chances are a lot of them didn't care for because like you said hey there's red dead redemption hey there's all these other games that are doing things mm-hmm. that everyone loves everyone's like they've never done this before they've never done this before 13 exactly. just had the visuals it had the visuals exactly. and it had the sound that was about so it. So moving to that, so I want to talk about technology, the role of technology, specifically cutting-edge technology in Final Fantasy. So, Jared, what do you think about technology's role in Final Fantasy, and do you feel like <clears throat> it's it really is so important that it needs to be one of these three pillars? Because something that the Game Informer guys actually brought up is that the technology aspect of a Final Fantasy game is usually the most expensive, most time-consuming, and most risky endeavor of all of it. And, 
you know, there's so much risk associated with creating this cutting edge technology, so much cost associated with it. Do you think that even after all that, do you still feel like the technology aspect of it really is so important that it deserves to be one of these three pillars when when considering all of Final Fantasy, not just I, 13? I do, but I think there is a balance to it. Uh, to, to explain why I think it does, mm-hmm. the technology, I would argue probably more than the other two, mm-hmm. appeals to our senses. It appeals to yes. our ears or eyes. That's going to be the first thing that grabs your attention. Absolutely. So if you don't grab someone's attention immediately, they're gone. Mm-hmm. They're moving on to something else. Exactly. Now, at the same time, though, that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be the most visually modern thing. And mm-hmm. I will use indie games as an example. Exactly. They are using older graphics. However, they are refined. They exactly. are refined. They work well. There's no bugs, which is something you see. We're seeing more often in modern games. And especially if you look at companies like Ubisoft. They yep. might have the nicest graphics, but they are ate up with bugs. They exactly. don't function properly. So with technology, it's got to work. Exactly. I think it's important that you bring up the visual side of things because the visuals, when we're talking about cutting-edge technology, the visuals is only one of the components of technology, of cutting-edge technology. There's so many other aspects of cutting-edge technology that... Uh, that can push the game forward. And I'm reminded of the, uh, you know, the, the change over from 2D to 3D when it comes to Final Fantasy. So if you look at the, the difference between Final Fantasy VI and Final Fantasy VII, you know, a lot of it came from the fact that they moved to 3D technology and it isn't just visuals. When you think about it, when you were playing Final Fantasy VI, you were playing this game almost entirely from the top-down perspective. You right. can see the entire world around you. But in Final Fantasy VII, now you have camera angles in every scene. You have all these, you know, other options. In the battle, you know, the camera rotates. It's not just something that's there for visual flair, even though it does deliver on that. It also fundamentally changes the way you play the game. And if we look at, in the case of Final Fantasy XV... The open world fundamentally changes how you play Final Fantasy XV. Because it's wide and open, you can go exploring. There's a lot more options. You know, you could have this massive, uh, you know, skyscraper size football player looking Titan. You can have this guy that looks like a linebacker running down at full, full speed in an open world. You know, to well, you know, to save the that, day. But we, we've seen with not the platinum demo, but the demo that came beforehand. Yeah. Sometimes you have to chase down your enemies, like the, the uh, exactly Bainith, after mm-hmm. you beat him the first time. You gotta chase that sucker down if you want to kill him again. You've exactly. Never had that in a Final Fantasy game up till then. It's uh, it's just a random encounter, and there's a percentile chance you'll get him. No, exactly. No, you see him, and you gotta get. You gotta him. run after him, and I think that's that's a really interesting point. Is that Something that was never possible in prior Final Fantasies was a chase. It wasn't possible because they literally, they literally did not have enough space in the rooms in those Final Fantasy games to run anywhere. You know, these were RPGs. Like, how are you going to, you know, have, have a chase if you don't have room to conduct the chase in? I think the closest they ever got was in, uh, Final Fantasy VII with the weapon. That was attacking. Uh, that was attacking Midgar. 
you know, you would see him on the open world and he was slowly lurching over towards Midgar to attack it. And, and that's how you'd go and save, quote unquote, save Midgar. Uh, but now in Final Fantasy 15, pretty much all the bosses can do that. You can have a boss that you chase down the open world. Uh, there's a shot in one of the Game Informer videos where you're, uh, Noctis and everybody, they're in the car and they're chasing after airships that are flying overhead. You just, you literally could not have that experience in prior Final Fantasies outside of a cutscene. It's not just that you're chasing them. In some cases, they're chasing you. Yeah, we they might be the chasing you at some seek point. You out. I mean, and we, we've seen that to a degree, but it's, it's uh, got the feeling like it's more fleshed out this time than we've seen in exactly. previous games in general. So I think this uh, this definitely goes to show that there's there's more there's more to technology than just visuals. I mean, visuals obviously play an important component. Like you said, it's the most readily apparent thing to your senses because you see it, and you know. But it's not only that, it also does affect the experience, it affects the kinds of experiences that you can have, and gives you a lot greater connection to the world, especially in the case of Final Fantasy XV, where you have an open world. So, I would agree. I think, from a technological standpoint, I do believe that technology does play a very important role, but I would say, you know, kind of like what you were saying before, the balance has been off in the prior Final Fantasies. I would say I would say it probably started with 10 and was probably more exacerbated in 13. But I think since 10, the uh, balance as far as how technology is distributed and, and the focus in technology has probably been more focused on presentation, which would include visuals and stuff like that. And uh, one last thing I like to point about technology, because you were talking about the expenses behind it. Yes. Uh, originally, I was very skeptical to believe this, and this was even going back a few years ago where people would yeah. say, well, it takes us so long, and it's so hard because it's so expensive. In my mind, mm -hmm. as, as someone who is a programmer, in mm -hmm. my mind, I, am, uh, I began to think, well, technology is supposed to get easier for us to use and implement. Why would that happen? Well, as you... Well, that, that, that's me being the student versus working the programmer job. When you do that, when you see how much time there's, and when you see how often everything just breaks on you, yep. not to mention these are people with degrees, so you have to pay them more. Yeah. Uh, it not, is not expensive. Just, the not expenses just degrees. The we're talking doctorates. They have they're doctorates and 20, 30 years of experience. Yeah. So. I mean, that experience is worth twice the doctorate. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's... It definitely is a risky endeavor, especially open world, because once you add the open world, there's so much possibility. And when it come, when you add possibility, and you can definitely agree when it comes from a programming standpoint, the second you add possibility, uh oh, how are we going to debug this? Mm -hmm. You know, and that, maybe that the problem best just gets so someone, big. Maybe the best way for uh, our listeners, if they if they want better understanding of that themselves, because th this is what opened my eyes to it. There is a software program called Game Maker. It helps you, well, one of the very first lessons, it teaches you about our collisions. Once you understand how deceitfully, um, it seems, it seems very simple, but you realize, no, that's not true. There is so much involved just in planning out collisions mm -hmm. and having a case for everything. You begin to realize this is not as simple as we thought it was. Exactly. There, there is a lot of work to it and it's not always fun. Absolutely. And it only gets exacerbated when you're trying to make an action game in a world that is uh, 
not just a bunch of buildings and city streets. You've got mountains with slopes and rocks formations, and you have to cr- crawl all over them. And you've got monsters that can crawl all over them. And you know, you got a monster that can rip off the roof of a building. And yeah, uh, you know, there's you know, there's so much that goes in te- technology. But I think it does. I think it is valuable, and I think it does add to the Final Fantasy experience. So I do agree with Tabata that that does belong in Final Fantasy 15. So the next uh, bullet point he was talking about is experience. And I think we sort of touched on that with technology because technology definitely can greatly influence experience. But Tabata was talking about how the a final fantasy game needs to create an experience that is something that is memorable that you're going to want to come back to that is going to be something that you keep thinking about even after you put down the controller and i think final fantasy 7 had that quality you know final fantasy 8 9 10 i i feel like those had that quality but for me personally i have not been able to go back to final fantasy 13 because of the experience and for me personally, I feel like the pacing of that game, the fact that you spend so many hours before you get to Pulse, where it finally starts opening up a little bit, knowing that at the beginning of the game makes me just like, oh, I'm not going to play through now, all now this see, again. I have to be a little careful with this one because yeah. um, I'm sure listeners who have heard me on some of these episodes before will know that when it comes to Final Fantasy and the experiences mm-hmm. I like, I tend to be in the minority. I'm a bit of an oddball. Okay, I that's enjoy fine. the spinoffs more so than the main stories. Okay. But, um, so, you know, m- that's why my experiences with 13 seem to be different from others. That, okay. That's just how I go with it. But with experiences, because like I said with technology, that's the first thing that appeals to your senses. Yeah. Th- th- this is how I think of it because experience affects your senses also. That's the story. Yes. That's the emotion. That's the side quest. Technology takes you by the hand and brings you to it. The experience yeah. is basically what bears. That's what you came for. It, it, yeah. It's the big embrace. Exactly. That holds you tight. And if it's a weak embrace, you're going to feel it's weak and you're going to push uh, away exactly, from it. Exactly, exactly. It's the I, depth. I hope that's a good example. Exactly. Experience yeah. is story growth, it's emotion, uh, extra content. And I'll, I'll use this as an example. Even mm-hmm. though I did enjoy Final Fantasy VIII, mm-hmm. one of the flaws I found with it is that the story felt like chunks were missing. It felt incomplete. Mm-hmm. It felt like it wasn't fully realized. Because of that, the story didn't grow on me like it should have. Okay. I wasn't emotionally attached to it like I should have. But the only thing keeping me in was the combat. Gotcha. Were gotcha. it not for that, I would have dropped it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's not just the newer ones. We've seen a goof up in experience. But right next to technology, experience is the most important thing. Absolutely. It's it's the reason you play the game is for the experience. So even the prettiest game that does draw you in if it doesn't have that depth you're looking for you're out of there so uh, yeah i think yeah absolutely i think that's probably the easiest thing to agree with tabata is the experience because that's the that's the important part of the game right so and how many times have we heard with the 13 trilogy that the beginning and the end are great but the middle falls flat and the middle is a chunk of your experience yeah that's where you spend most of the game it's like the beginning, you know, it pulls you in and the ending makes you feel satisfied, but without a good middle, you're not exactly. going to make it to the end. Exactly. And I think that's something that when you think about, hey, this is an open world Final Fantasy, I think that's the one thing that I feel the most secure in is, oh, hey, the middle is going to be this great adventure where I actually get to explore an entire open world and there's going to be side quests and there's going to be all these cool things that I can do and massive boss fights and crazy cities that I can explore. I'm excited about that. So, 
So that's the second pillar. The final and third pillar, I think, is the most interesting because I think it might be one of the more controversial ones, and that's the idea of challenging the status quo. And this is the part where, you know, Tabata's like, yeah, Final Fantasy's screwing up. They haven't been what they used to be. You know, he's he's definitely saying all the right things, you know, if he wants to challenge the status quo. Uh, I think if we're talking about, like, older Final Fantasies, to me, what that always meant was that you know, this is a Final Fantasy that challenges the status quo is the one that sets the standard. And I think this is probably where I might differ a little bit from Tabata in that I don't feel like every Final Fantasy needs to challenge the status quo because I've, uh, and this might change because, you know, console generations aren't what they used to be, or at least at E3, we'll, we'll find out how, how different they will be. But in my mind, the Final Fantasy that needs to challenge the status quo is whatever the one is that comes out first on the console. You know, I'm talking about Final Fantasy 1, I'm talking about Final Fantasy 4, I'm talking about 7, I'm talking about 10, I'm talking about 13. The Final Fantasy that sets the standard for what is possible in a gen- in a console generation, to me, that's the one that needs to challenge the status quo because I feel like there is value in refinement. You know, Final Fantasy VIII was able to do things that you couldn't do in Final Fantasy VII. And, you know, same thing with Final Fantasy IX. It's a refinement of Final Fantasy VII. And I think there's still value in that. But I do agree that we haven't had a Final Fantasy that truly challenged the status quo in a long time. So, Jared, how do you feel about this idea of challenging the status quo. Do you feel like it's necessary for all Final Fantasies? And and also, how do you feel about Final Fantasy XV? Do you think that the, that Final Fantasy XV necessitates challenging the status quo? Yeah, well, uh, one of the things you said that um, I agree with is how with each new console, we mm-hmm. would get a new Final Fantasy that would set the center for the others, like Final Fantasy One create mm-hmm. a world that felt real. It didn't feel like a game anymore. Exactly. Uh, four was where we got characters who... Story. Too, yeah. We got characters fleshed out we ain't seen before. And they exactly. had the time battle system. Yep. You know, seven, the graphics. Yep. Uh, ten, a little more on the story. But where he needs to be careful mm-hmm. is when it comes to the combat. Yes. Because here's the thing. When I hear changing the, uh, the status quo in relation to combat, I think spinoffs. Yes. Remember, I'm the, I'm the guy who enjoys the spinoffs, and that's yeah. because the system is different. I'm getting something new. A mm-hmm. main series is expected to have enough similarity, mm-hmm. and but when you make such a drastic change in the combat like you did with 13, mm-hmm. you're going to take more people off to make them happy. Gotcha. Um, and I, I think that's somewhere he should be concerned. And unfortunately, and this is why I've been a little uneasy about 15 ever since the demo. Yes. 15 feels like a spinoff. Because it was originally supposed to be a spinoff. Yeah. I don't mind you uh, changing the status quo in the story or the flow of the game in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, the visual, you want to go for a different art style, go for it. You want to go for a new music style, go for it. Mm-hmm. But when you change the combat, you are getting into some murky territory. Mm-hmm. Because people still won't, uh, they, they still want a game that harkens back to 
the older Final Fantasies. Gotcha. Because e- even Nine did that at some point. They kind of took a step back. Mm-hmm. To it was it's a game of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I wonder if Fifteen shouldn't do what Star Wars Seven did, mm-hmm. and that's it's playing on your nostalgia, and it plays on your nostalgia mm-hmm. to let you know. Guys, we hear what you're saying. Yeah, we're here for you. We're bringing back what you want. Yes, I think it's I think it's interesting the way Final Fantasy 15 is is both challenging the status quo, but also uh, you know reclaiming and hearkening back to prior Final Fantasies. I think I think there's definitely a lot of people that feel that way about the battle system, but I think there's also the other aspect of some people feel like Final Fantasy 15 is probably more like a Final Fantasy than prior, you know, the the more recent Final Fantasies, and and here's how how I'll you know explain that. So I feel like because Final Fantasy is such a long franchise and has so many different entry points, literally all of them are entry points because they don't require prior knowledge from other games. So there are literally thirteen. Well. I guess 12 mainline games that aren't MMOs. So there's like 12 mainline games that aren't MMOs that are entry points into the series. Whatever game you start with is going to color what you expect from other Final Fantasies. And not only that, different people like different things about Final Fantasies. That's another crazy variable. So for some people, the thing that makes the game Final Fantasy is the turn-based battle system. It's the, you know, it's the leveling up, it's the battles, it's the music and and, and all of that. But for other people, it's the it's more on the experience. It's the exploration. It's the uh the going to new towns and talking to the people there and finding out what's going on in this world and then going on this great adventure. I think for people that like the experience and the adventure side of things, I think Final Fantasy 15 feels like the most Final Fantasy Final Fantasy has been in a long time. But for people that are into Final Fantasy more from a gameplay standpoint and, you know, the story is, you know, ever changing, it can be whatever it is. For those people, I think they will probably feel more disserviced by Final Fantasy. And I think, you know, you know that's that's probably going to be a, a big uh, a big point of controversy. I feel for Final Fantasy fifteen. For me personally, combat system, I can take it or leave it. But the experience, the exploration, and the journey, I've felt disserviced by the thirteen series a little bit by ten. Even though, it's, ironically enough, it's my first Final Fantasy. It's my favorite. Once I've experienced you know, six, seven, eight, and nine, and I could see what Final Fantasy used to be, I felt like, man, I I want this in the modern age, you know, what would it be like if Final Fantasy one is modernized? And if you think about a person that goes to Final Fantasy for the adventure, if they're that kind of person, the way Final Fantasy fifteen modernizes that adventure is the overworld becomes the open world. You know, those those to me are modern uh, that that's a modern equivalent. The uh, the airship you got a flying car. You know, eight had cars. Seven had a motorcycle. <laughs> that's that's insane in and of itself. You know, you've got uh the four warriors of light. Literally, you got four guys right. that that are the four warriors of light. Almost all the monsters 
are old Final Fantasy monsters, and not only are they almost all old Final Fantasy monsters, they're the Yoshitaka Amano designs from Final Fantasy 1 through 6. So, from an experiential standpoint, ignoring the gameplay and battle system, I feel like if you're a Final Fantasy fan that likes the adventure aspect of Final Fantasy, this game would probably feel like the most Final Fantasy it's ever been. Or at least since 9. But if you're really into the gameplay and the way it felt to play the old Final Fantasy games, I feel like, yeah, you're you're probably going to feel like this is a, an insane departure. This doesn't feel like Final Fantasy at all. And yeah, like you said, it probably feels like a spinoff. And uh, I, what you're saying is it, it does feel like a modern interpretation of Final Fantasy with all those things you said. Yeah. Except that battle system. Yeah. Because, I mean, each, I mean, I'm, I'm aware each game in the series takes that old system and tweaks it a little more and tweaks it and yeah. tweaks it and tweaks it. This doesn't feel like a tweak. This feels like. Yeah, it's definitely not a tweak. Uh, you, you can tell, you know, the guy from Kingdom Hearts did this. And Kingdom Hearts is not, I mean, yeah, it's got some attachment to it, but it's not Final Fantasy. Yeah. And well, I, I guess that, uh, I have nothing wrong with changing mm-hmm. combat, you know, because I I liked the combat thirteen to a degree. Yeah, but this doesn't feel like a modern interpretation. Yes, that, that, that's think, my problem. Yeah, I think the the I, I think where the battle system fits as far as an interpretation is not an interpretation of the battle system. It's more an interpretation of how combat is presented in Final Fantasy. In prior games, it could only be expressed through cutscenes. What Final Fantasy XV's battle system is, it's trying to give you the experience of Advent Children in your hands. It wants to make it feel like you're playing the crazy FMV that plays during that one fight, or or right after, right before that one fight in a Final Fantasy game. They want the game to play like that. So I guess... In in a way, it kind of is an interpretation, but yeah, I can totally see why. Yeah, if your vision of Final Fantasy battle systems is you know more informed by the actual gameplay than it is by the story and the way the story presents fighting, I feel like yeah, absolutely. This hmm. this battle system does not match that at all. Yeah, now now the way you just said how they are trying to give you that fight scene you always wanted. Yeah. Okay. Now, had Square Enix bothered to explain that's what they were trying to go for? My idea uh, may, may be different. Yeah, it might. Yeah, I think I think the marketing definitely plays into it a lot. And, you know, I, I wish they would focus more on why they would make these decisions. But uh, maybe it's sort of assumed that the fans know that. But I know for sure that was something that Nomura was talking about, at least when, when Versus was coming about. You know, he wanted to make this you know, feel like this is the cutscene, feel like it's Advent Children. You know, mm-hmm. they they literally brought Advent Children animators <laughs> to work yeah. on Final Fantasy Versus 13. I'm sure some of them still are working on 15. They're probably carried over. But yeah, I think at the end of the day, it's really interesting because Final Fantasy is such a big franchise and it means different things to different people. And I think the fact that there's so many different games, so many different entry points, and the fact that even within each individual games, there's so many different things that people like about the games and take away from the games that everybody's got their own different perspective on it. Everybody's got their own thing that they love about it and their own way to see it. 
You know, it's like it's you take five people in a room and have them witness, you know, a, a boxing match. And they're, and if you ask them, those five different people, you bring them into different rooms and you ask them, what was that boxing match? You're going to get five entirely different perspectives on what that, on what just happened. And I think, you know, the fact that there's just so many different games and there's so much that makes up Final Fantasy, I think it only exacerbates that. So, so yeah, I think at the end of the day, uh, I'm excited for Final Fantasy 15. I'm glad that Tabata is vocalizing you know, this idea, this concept that he wants to push Final Fantasy forward in these different ways. Jared, do you think these are the right pillars that he's supposed to be focusing on? Is there anything you think he's missing for Final well, Fantasy 15? I guess my only critique would be that Sanger challenging the status quo is really just reiterating the previous two pillars. Exactly. But, uh, I, I think he is targeting the right things. Yes. Um, especially when he went to explanation of why it is those three things. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I do believe he has the right idea. I do believe he is going in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, and I, w- I would definitely agree. Uh, while I would d- disagree a little bit in the sense that it, it seemed like he was saying that every Final Fantasy f- game should challenge the status quo. I'm personally of the mind that let's have one Final Fantasy that sets the standard that does challenge the status quo. And then let's have a couple of Final Fantasies after that that refine that previous idea because I think there's a lot of value in that. Uh, regardless of that, as far as I'm concerned, Final Fantasy 15 is the one that needs to do that. It's the first. Absolutely. It's the first Final Fantasy on the new consoles. I couldn't agree more. If any Final Fantasy is supposed to challenge the status quo, it's the one that sets the standard for the generation. And as far as I'm concerned, that's Final Fantasy 15. All right, so that pretty much wraps up our show. Our music for this episode is a track from Final Fantasy XV, remixed by Tommy Lucas. This is uh, a remix of the Dawn trailer music on piano and strings. You can check out Tommy Lucas on YouTube. This is an awesome, very emotional cover of 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 this music. And, you know, it was a great challenge to find Final Fantasy XV music for this episode. But despite all that... We got some good ones. So thank you, Tommy Lucas, for doing for doing the doing justice to that game that isn't even out yet. Uh, our next Final Fantasy Union will be scheduled for the 10th of May. And uh, you can subscribe to Final Fantasy and Kingdom Hearts Union on the iTunes store. Just search for Final Fantasy. And we're number one in most territories on iTunes. Uh, also, hey, I'm on Kingdom Hearts Union, so if you want to catch Kingdom Hearts Union, it's next Tuesday, uh, which I believe, as of right now, is going to be May 3rd, so check us out, May 3rd, Kingdom Hearts Union, be there, or be square. Enix. Uh, Enix. (laughs) I'm still not sure if I want to keep that catchphrase but we'll see. (laughs) And as always, you guys can support us on Patreon. If you guys like the show, you want us to get better, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash FFKHUnion. All right, Jared, it's been a good, good episode. I thought we had some really great discussions, so... Absolutely. I think it's time to hit that old dusty trail and go Ah. back to... Go back to shooting alligators, drinking orange juice, and uh, whatever us Floridians do. Some good old southern iced tea with catfish and cheese grits. There you go. And for me, it's more like, let's have some Poya Tropical and uh, go get a tan on the beach. 
because I'm South Florida. So that's yeah, that's that's the annoying thing is most people when they hear Florida, they think it's like just any other state. You know, the entire state is all the same. Nope. At not, some point, not at all. At some not point at in Florida, you get so far south that you are no longer in quote unquote the South. Well, te- technically, if you really want to get into it, Alabama, which is above Florida, is the South. Yeah, exactly. Which is that—that that, that is the true South of America. That is true. That is the true "quote unquote" the South. So, anyway, all right, Jared, say your goodbyes. Bye, guys. See you soon. All right. So I'm Brandon saying goodbye. This has been a Final Fantasy Union production. <laughs>